I mean, like the pain really hasn't, it's just starting. So uh, last time we, well, I guess your first pa- podcast we were on was uh, like a state of the union kind of kind of yeah. thing, right? <clears throat> was it spring of 2022? And it was right as rates were about to yeah. start ramping up. Yeah. And uh, I got a quote from the podcast. You said, it's hard to imagine a world where capital costs double. Yeah. Uh, they tripled. Yeah. yeah. So I was going to say, yeah, Crazy. where where are we? We're at, uh, are we at the beginning of the end of a real estate, or the beginning of the end, yeah, of a real estate cycle? Uh, I think we're like probably in the third inning right now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like the pain really hasn't, it's just starting. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you're seeing... Um, Power of sales are up like 300%, 400%. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, and is that uh, power of sales, how long after someone defaults will it go to power of sale? And I guess explain like in Canada the difference because we have power of sale versus a foreclosure, right? Yeah. So we do have foreclosure in like Alberta, one of the other prairies, and one Atlantic province. Um, but power of sale basically is where the lender, it's already written in the contract, but if you are delinquent, if you stop paying your loan, um, they can take you to court and exercise the power to sell your property, power of sale. Um, so, And basically, they would go list the property on the MLS. Um, they actually, the difference between a power of sale and a foreclosure is in a foreclosure, they take the asset. Yeah. Um, and so... At the loss is already on their books. Like they're not, di- they're not incentivized to um, protect the value. Whereas in a power of sale, they have to protect the owner's equity. They have to try legally. They have a legal obligation to try and get the owner as much um, equity out of the property as they possibly can. Right. So, so the it gets sold, and if there's a surplus on the loan, the owner gets it back. Yeah, exactly. Whereas less for- cost, so like less any fees, and you do see a lot of like lenders, especially privates, um, more sophisticated privates, but also individual privates, try and like really put a lot of those stack a lot of those fees into sure to be a pain in the ass. Yeah, um, but I would assume that probably most people who are power of sale are not walking away with a profit. Right, right. So they're up three hundred percent. Yeah, it depends on the year over year. Like, there was a period of time where they were up 400% on a year. Like, depends on the month, right? So, they're actually down since last month. But we're, we've gone from, like, basically, you you used to see, like, five a month, and now you're seeing, like, 80 to 100. And this is Canada or GTA? That's just on the Toronto Real Estate Board. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why is this not, like, a major headline? Uh, it has been. Like, I've, I've reported that to uh, Reuters has taken that chart from me. Okay. Bloomberg. Okay. Um, it's just like, it, it's, I guess the, the reason that it's not like a sky is falling thing yet is because it's still less than like a hundred listings. Right. And so it's less than 1% of total supply. Right. So if it was only five, you can, you can have these big percentages that sound scary, but it's still a low number. Yeah. I mean, it is and it isn't right. Like the trend line looks like an exponential trend line. Right. Like, it's scary. Yeah. And if you were to assume and, you know, you shouldn't assume, but if you were to um, assume that the same increase was happening to delinquencies, because um, mm. everyone's always like, oh, everything's fine in Canadian real estate because delinquencies are at record low. So, and, it, and it's actually, I'm glad you asked about like the process because the pro- the process that I described to you to take a property power of sale takes about 
less than 90 days. Okay. So property could be sold before that delinquency is even reported on the bank's books. Wow. Because banks only report loans that are 90 days delinquent. Mm. Whereas the power of sale is probably going to take place. A lender is going to start the process immediately right. as soon as it's delinquent. And then the person still can become undelinquent if they want. But, you know, if you're a lender, you want to be prudent about moving the, the process along um, and recovering that that loss. So I look at it, and I presented this at a couple of conferences recently, because everybody's saying, oh, delinquencies are so low. Well, what if they're not? And the data point is just four months away. Because right. CBA, the Canadian Bankers Association, reports uh, not, loans that are 90 days delinquent a month after they come out or they get the, the data point from the bank. So now it's four months right. delinquent. And CMHC, which is probably the more common data point that you're hearing, you're seeing in the media and more people are, are looking for, is the next quarter they report it. So it's six months. So to me, it's like, yeah, this is going to, like, you're going to see a huge increase in delinquency. It's already showing up in the power of sales. Right. Um, it's just a matter of, of, you know, when or how long does it take for that to happen? I don't even think we'll get above, like right now we're at like 0.01% delinquent. On okay. I don't, and I don't think delinquency has ever been above 1% in Canada. Okay. Um, and it's because the government will do pretty much anything they can to bail out the housing market right? at the risk of de- completely destroying our economy, which I think is kind of the trade-off that's happening right now. So you don't see, so I guess let's go through, you know, a housing cycle. And if we're in the third inning, what does a whole cycle look like? I don't know if you want to jump back to 1990 or not. But Yeah, the 90s are great. Like, I think like I, I got lucky by saying like that I felt like they would play out like the 90s and, um, it, it really is kind of like happening more and more, I feel like. I mean, 89, like house prices fell 20%. Um, right. 2022, house prices fell 20%. Um, 1990, house prices actually went up like 5 to 10% in the spring market, and then they fell again for the remaining remainder of the year. Same thing happened this year. 2023, we saw the strongest spring market we've ever seen. Last year, we saw the biggest house price crash we saw, we've ever seen. Right. Well, and and what, what, what percentage was that? Uh, depends, but like, I, th- I think on the HPI, it was like, uh, or sorry, on the average national house price, it was like 22%. Wow. From peak to trough. Yeah. And like, so that was basically from like February to end of the year, uh, or February to February of, so 2022 to 2023. So you think there's still more to go if we're in the third inning? I would say so. Yeah. Like, I think you, you see the big drop and then you see like this little kind of like bull trap and then it kind of like grinds down over a long period of time as like... All of the bulls are exposed to real estate. Like right. you know what I mean? Like they already bought. Yeah. Like there's no bulls left. They're they're like trying to figure out how to, you know, sell their power of sale and still get out or whatever. Right. right? Like it, and the bears are still waiting. And so there's this period of time where like and you see it right now, volume is down like uh sixty percent. Dollar total dollar total dollar volume of the real estate industry is down sixty percent. And it has been for like a year. Like of, of sales. Yeah. yeah. Like, re- like real estate realtors are like super in recession. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And listings are? Uh, they're just ramping up for the first time. Like so tight supply is what has kind of kept things stable. Right. Um, we were still in a state of excess demand. And so you couldn't see that like downward velocity. Right. So from my understanding, what creates these cycles essentially is, you know, artificially low interest rates, free money. Yeah. And 
you know, everyone has zero opportunity costs, so they may as well just buy a house or buy something with a low down payment and what was like, you know, 1% interest or roughly. Yeah, I mean, well, if if the real inflation rate, so like adjusted for, or sorry, if the real interest rate adjusted for inflation is negative, then yeah. it's literally the economically responsible thing to do to take on debt and buy something that... Right, that you otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. If the real price of money, like the real price of money is so obscured. Yeah. Uh, because of just governments printing money and giving it away. Yeah. Functionally, if you take on debt, it, you, the debt would be inflated away in an inflationary environment because the value of money would, like people are like, oh, house prices always go up. It's like, do they? Or does the value of a dollar always go down? Right. And I would say probably the latter. The, the 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 challenge with this in real estate is like real estate's a great inflation hedge because it's a tangible asset that is like a sum of all parts of inflation. So you have lumber, you have labor, you mm. have all of these things that are baked into a house. Right. Um, the, the difficulty in a market like Ontario is um, you don't have pricing power because your rents are capped below inflation. And so it's technically the government saying... There's inflation, but you can't you can't increase your ability to sell your product at the rate of inflation. Right, because of uh, like rent control. Rent, rent control. Yeah. So, and this is why a lot of people like Airbnb or student rentals, so they can turn over their rents more often. Right. To keep Bypass resuming that. that pricing power. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where re- real estate really falls short in Canada. And, and in a lot of landlord-friendly or any rent-controlled areas. It's, it is especially funny because, actually, uh, Murtaza Hyder has a great paper on how rent controls actually harm housing affordability and make rents more expensive. And if you just look at it, like, it doesn't... It's, it's visible to the naked eye. Go to all of these places in the world that have rent control, and the rents are the highest there. Right. Right. So that's actually causation. It's a supply suppression. I, I mean, it, there's no way to... to mm, okay, I see. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? But yeah, yeah. there's no way to indicate... Um, whether or not it would actually cause it, but it's just there's a correlation there, yeah. Right, like, so in a market like Toronto or New York or something, right, an investor's not going to build new supply because it doesn't make sense. And um, existing tenants who might otherwise be incentivized to leave and upsize or buy a house or whatever are also don't want to leave their existing units because mm. they have such a cheap rate right, relative to the economy outside of their home that is inflating. Right, right. So are there any, um, I guess, what's different now or is there a difference between the 90s and now? The the X factor, I think, is that we're in a fully globalized world now mm. and that immigration is... So immigration was high in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It was the last time we saw population growth peak. And actually, I use the word immigration, but I shouldn't. I should use the word population growth because... There are two components, um, and and it's worth thinking about what they did in the '90s. So, in 1989, we hit that was the last time we hit a uh, set a record for population growth. Okay, 1.81 um, percent. The, the first time we broke that record since 1889 was last year, and we broke it at 1.84 percent. Now we're at like 2.5 percent. Wow. So there's a lot of components to that. That so one is um, a lot of demographers are speculating that there's a huge backlog because they weren't processing. Mm. Like there was like no... During COVID. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, there was no population growth during COVID. And then now all of a sudden there's millions. Um, so that's component number one, but component number two is like half, let's just say it's around half. It, it varies on a month by month basis, but around half of that is non-permanent residents. Mm. Whereas before a lot more of it was actual immigration and non-permanent residents is a lot of, um, international students, which is a huge, causing a huge crisis right now, actually for, from a housing perspective. Um, and it's horrible to see what's happening to these students who are coming here. Um, a lot of people who are temporary workers that, that because Canadian employers can't fill job vacancies with Canadian workers. Yeah. Um, and so immigration, or I guess, temporary workers, they're not, they're not, not be, being given permanent residency, which is an important component. Um, and because if they don't have the job, then they're not going to stay. Right? Okay. Um, and, and then the remain, then there would be 50% of it would be actual immigration. People are getting permanent residency. So there's a couple of um, pieces here, but in 89, the permanent residency or immigration ramped up Yeah, during a recession, 89 to 94, immigration actually continued to grow. Um, what fell off a cliff was that non-permanent residency. And that's okay. that for us is a huge component of economic growth in Canada. Um, I mean, our um, educational system is make, is, is bigger than our largest export, which is auto parts. Really? Yeah. 22 billion, I think. And then auto parts like 19 billion. And that's just tuition? Yeah. 70% of that is international students as well who are paying three times as much for the same degree as Canadians. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. They're paying three times as much. A lot of them aren't getting um, actual PR when they graduate because their CRS score isn't high enough because CRS score is like the actual PR score. Okay. Um, CRS score is uh, whatever the... That's like the immigration scoring system. Scoring system. So their, you know, their job prospects or yeah. their, or their also their financial. Yeah. Ability to contribute ability, to the yeah. economy, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of the um, students are coming here. They're overpaying for a degree. They're um, working they're, They increase the amount of um, hours that these students can work mm. because they have to, to pay for their jobs. Um, and <laughs> uh, some of these schools, like I won't name any, but um, have increased their, their enrollment by like in the thousands of percents. Like one was like almost, I don't want to say 7,000%. Um, but there's other ones that are like, it, you know, it's not uncommon to see this list where it's like 1400% or whatever. Um, and that's international enrollment and they, and they built in the same period of time, no houses, like wow. none. <laughs> and so, so this has become a huge mess. Like, and it's a huge housing crisis where you're seeing videos all over the internet of, you know, rooms full of mattresses and whatever. So, so we're in a housing crisis. We're in a, foreign student housing crisis yeah. and also i guess just a student housing crisis yeah. uh what are some of the remedies people are talking about or or are there any concrete plans that schools or the government's talking about i think like you're seeing i think the government's probably throwing the best that they have at it to be honest with you which is a sad state um and i think we're almost like we're getting close to the point where you just see like a citizen-led solution where people are just like screw it like we're just not going to get building permits anymore because mm. like, you know, I think you're already seeing that. And that's what this like DIY density of people turning like McMansions into rooming houses is. Yeah. Um, I think that that's just going to continue happening. I think if you look at the U S as a good example, um, the U S and Canada has followed the same trend. So both most of the Commonwealth, but let's just say the U S and Canada, um, the average ha household size. So number of people living in a house has fallen since, Basically, these countries were 
founded. Okay. From, but in Canada, it went from like seven people in like 1990, let's say, to like 2.6 is where we're at right now. Right. In the U.S., same thing happened, but in the last couple of years, it started increasing. Same thing's going to happen here. And and in Australia, you know, U.S., Canada, and Australia have the three largest um, square footages per capita. Okay. Biggest houses, let's call it. Um, that's We're just 200 years behind where Europe right. was. And, and the only real difference is, like, Europe, it was really easy for people to migrate there 200 years ago because they were connected by land. So people weren't really coming to North America as much. Now it's very easy to migrate to North America, and people want to migrate. Like, they, they want to come here, have a chance at a better life, whatever it is. Um, we are just where all of these European countries that now have multi-generational homeownership, 40 year mortgages, low homeownership, you know, high rent, uh, sorry, high, uh, rentership, young people rent, they don't own, et cetera. I mean, the, all of those things are just that we're, that's the point that we're at in our cycle. Like the whole, you know, uh, world economic forum, like you'll own nothing and be happy stuff. Like it, it, it was, the writing was always on the wall, right? Like right. They, you know, like it, it's just, that's where we are now. Huh. So, um, so you see like a, uh, I guess like a, a libertarian answer to this in that people are just going to opt out of, of restrictive, you know, uh, I guess governmental restrictions on creating housing supply. They're just going to go ahead and do it. hundred percent. Like they already have, and they have to, like the government has failed, has consistently failed. Uh, you know, and now you're hearing like uh, Toronto's going to allow fourplexes. What do you think that does to people who are thinking, "Oh, I'm going to fourplex my house, but I don't, I, I don't want to sit and wait for permits." Yeah, like I know guys who at the beginning of COVID submitted for a permit for something and didn't get a response from, like, didn't even get sure. an email back from yeah. the government for yeah. a year, and just built it. And by the time the government gets back to them, they're like, "Yeah, I built it. Come inspect it." Like, and they're like, "Whoa, well, you didn't get a permit." It's like, "Well, what am I going to do?" Like, honestly, like, really, what, what else? You're, yeah, like this was for business. It's actually somebody we both know, but um, you know, it was it was a bit for business activity. It's like what, uh, like I did it all the code. Yep. I hired a third party inspector. I paid all of this extra money to to fulfill because otherwise you were obstructing my ability to grow my business. Like, what other role do you actually have as a municipal government right. than letting people do like your th- their primary role is to regulate and and allow people to do with land what they are supposed to be able to do with land. Right. And they just are failing so badly at it. Yeah. They're just putting, you know, to do anything is two to five years. Minimum. Yeah. yeah. And, and hundreds of thousands of dollars of consultants that are telling the uh, policymakers what their Paul own policy says. Yep. Like you literally pay a planner to interpret the document that the municipal government wrote. Yeah. hundred percent. It's bad, man. It's a really bad situation. And so, so I think that we're just going to see, and I, th- well, we're already seeing it. Like the amount of people who ask me, Hey, do I need a permit? If I'm going to put a basement apartment in a thing, I'm obviously not going to say to them, no, you don't need a permit, but right. they're, they're asking me a rhetorical question. Like what they're saying is I'm going to build this without a permit. How much trouble am I going to get in? Right. And I explained to them how much trouble they're going to get in. And the high risk is like, if the house burns down because they didn't put proper fire rating, then that, that would be a very bad situation. And, right. You know, that's where people need to be very considerate and careful. Um, and so now there's like third party fire inspectors that are doing this stuff. Like it's just like the, the black or gray market that's evolved as a result of this. And that's people who are trying to do the right thing. Right. And saying, then there's the whole other side of mattresses on a floor the and complete. 20 adults in a house. That's, 
not people trying to do the right thing that is, is probably creating a ton of housing supply and creating very bad situations as a result of it. Right. So right. it's, it's a real mess, like really, really huge mess. Wow. So are they gonna, like, are they gonna lessen these, these restrictions and, and expedite, you know, zoning changes for, you know, these core student areas to allow just doesn't density? sound like it. No, it doesn't sound like it. I don't know. I mean, the, the Ontario provincial government was going to, um, allow multiplexes or up to three units on any residential lot in the province. Right. And then the I think there was a lot of backlash from municipalities who were basically afraid they were getting the keys taken away and getting their, their rights taken away to regulate land use. Yeah. Um, and then you started to see some cities ramping up like kind of in almost like a defensive move, like the city of Toronto, as an example, we're like, shit, we're going to lose this. Like, let's just go four units. And so they did that. And I think that this is all posturing for them to say, Oh, maybe the province will back off if we're showing them that we can mm. um, do it. And now, but now you're seeing the federal government do, like really pushing and going around doing all these like little celebrations with people, you know, Vaughn, London, um, trying to get people to remove exclusionary zoning, start up zoning, everything to multiplexes. I think it's just, it's, it's happening right now. And I think we're going to, in four years, we're going to realize that it didn't really build any supply because the bo- it just moved the bottleneck from planning to the building department. Mm, yeah. And and now we're in, in the same problem. And at, during that four-year period of time where the government is realizing that they've just moved the problem or moved the bottleneck, all of the people who don't care or who are just fed up with the bottleneck at this point and yeah. have already maybe submitted build, build, building permits or whatever that are trying to be capitalists or be contributing members of society, build housing, help solve the housing crisis, whatever it is, they're going to just build units during that period of time. Like... I, th- I think that that's just what's going to happen. I really do. I think, I, I don't think it's going to be like at, at scale, but I think that the biggest impact of the government, the Toronto government, as an example, saying they're going to allow upzoning to four units. The biggest impact of that is going to happen from units that they'll never, that'll never show up as a data point. Right. Right. That's how bad it is. I think. Huh. Um, it's funny actually listening to um, Robert F. Kennedy talking about, uh, housing affordability he talks about it a lot and uh, I guess he dug deep into it in, in California and, and he's like you know I, I came in with these because uh, it's a big homelessness problem in California and he's like I, I came in with these preconceptions that it's you know mental health issue drug use issue but his conclusion was that it's you know housing affordability issue we have these right. same problems if you go back to back with West Virginia and their home rate of homelessness is you know, nowhere near California. Right. And so literally the government artificially increasing the cost of, you know, per using a unit of housing has created or, you know, keeps homelessness high. hundred percent. And that's California. And let's say our country, it's as bad in Canada. Sure. If not worse. Uh, or it could get as bad. And we have a climate that would kill people. Mm hmm. And and this is our first winter. Like we're coming up on our first winter of a like peak housing crisis. Like I, I really think that the political political pressure is just going to continue mounting for the hmm. sol- solutions to this. Like you're seeing it. it, it to, maybe it's a, like I'm in an echo chamber and it's a selection bias on the stuff that I consume. But I feel like this is like the biggest conversation nationally right now. Interesting. And I think it's only going to get more like that when we have when it's February and minus 30, 40, whatever, and people are dying on the streets because the government has failed to deliver housing. There's a, um, 
there's a, a stat and I forget what the exact numbers are. Uh, you probably know. And it was like, what is the governmental cost per unit of housing, which is like DCs and yeah. all this stuff in Toronto and Vancouver. And it's in like the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, it would be, it's 30, uh, 31% of the total cost structure of housing goes to tax. Like, and that's, that's all levels of tax, but so, but DCs are a big, big portion of that. But so that's municipal, provincial, and that includes like um, uh, HST and income tax on the wages of the laborers. But still, I mean, even if it was 20%, like right. it should be like maybe, I don't know, between five and 10% kind of thing. Yeah. Right? So like, if the average home price is what in the GTA, like close to a million bucks. Yeah. It's 300 grand. Right. Yeah. 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 And they, and you know, now we have this big celebration that the government released remove GST, which is 5.5% of the total cost structure. So they've improved the economics of housing by 5.5%. Right. Like there's still 25% left to go from my perspective. So from my understanding, uh, well, I guess, you know, we were probably talking about it last time. Inflation's a big problem, yeah. you know, uh, and I, I went through kind of a historical graph of, every time the government, you know, tried to step in and fix inflation and the interest, the, the interest rate has to go above yeah. inflation. Yeah. And we're not there yet. It, do they have to, I mean, on the real inflation number, do they have to acknowledge the real inflation number first? You mean like, like that, that CPI isn't correct? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's tough to say, right? Like, um, if you look at us true inflation as an example, um, they're they're there right like we would sure. have real positive rates canada is different because yeah i mean cpi is just like i don't know i mean it is what it is but um yeah. it's tough to say like they i think i don't even think it really matters to in canada like at all i i think that it, we literally just have to do whatever the u.s fed does otherwise okay. Because we, they're just such an important trading partner in all settlement currencies and the U.S. dollars for the, th the goods that we're buying that, like, if we deviate too much, like, I don't, I don't think they can deviate more than 50 basis points from the Fed, and we're currently at 25. Right. Um, if they do, then we're importing inflation, and then CPI continues to ramp up. And and th and this is where it, it becomes, like, a political balancing act or, or a, a central bank balancing act. Um, but I, I would say like Canadian CPI doesn't even matter. Like it could be completely false, which it probably is. And us CPI really is all that matters. And you have us job numbers are all that matter because it, and whenever the fed pivots is when we will be able to, to pivot. Right. So, and pivot being decreasing interest rates. Yeah. Uh, and does that only come when there's a real recession? Typically, yes. Like, it, it kind of has to happen as a response to something. Um, they're sort of forced to overshoot because they're looking at, like, well, you need you need disinflation and then deflation. And, and usually, like, because of the lag, like, right now, we're literally just feeling the first rate hikes in the economy. Right. And it feels bad, right? Yeah. So imagine when the remainder of the move through. Um, I, I think that they're, they're forced to overshoot. Like everybody has this idea of a soft landing. Um, I, I just don't, I don't necessarily think it's, it's, it's at all possible. Um, because you, you'd, you'd have to have like forward looking data, like, okay, I know that unemployment is gonna, um, is gonna ramp up at this point in time. And 
we we have like enough historic context that you could you could guess, but they they already messed up by not raising way earlier, like that, and that's right. That's where the fatal error was, I think. Um, but if you look at job numbers, like right now, we're pretty much perfectly in line with like every other hiking cycle, okay. every other pre recession. Like if you if you look at the big spike in infl- I think I posted the chart today, but I'll I'll send it to you. But it, if you look at the spikes in unemployment, they're all kind of they start with like a very slow ramp up okay. and then they sh- spike. Um, so the, the U S has the, the U S fed has a kind of dual mandate, right? Um, low inflation and um, full employment. Um, in Canada, it's really just, just low inflation and inflation. Um, and, and the, and, and especially with, you know, geopolitics wars now wars in the middle East oil, um, like, the exogenous factors that they can't control with the interest rate on inflation right now are just like really, really intensifying. Right. It's it, like they're, I really think the central banks are pretty trapped right now. Like I think it, this is where I do think the comparison to the nineties is especially good because I think like it's going to be a long, bad recession. Right. And I didn't, I didn't think that I thought that like maybe we could have a, a quick bad recession yeah. before, but now it feels like it's going to be a long one. I mean like, if, like fill up your truck. It's like 250 bucks now. Like, and, yeah. and then you remember that all of the trucks carrying all of the goods have an engine twice the size of yours and are filling up for $2,000. Like, yeah. And you're like, oh, man. Like, I know farmers that I've talked to that are, like, saying there's, the fuel costs have gone up by millions of dollars. Like, yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. Uh, we filled up our rig uh, driving to Quebec, and it was uh, 1900 bucks. Like yeah, same and end. like that's and that's just one like that that's one part of the supply chain. And then you think about tractors, like you know, and like it's like this is so bad. Like we're actually in real stagflation right now, which we haven't really seen since like the seventies. Like it's right. No, there's not. There's not even like a central banker alive who like really was like a mature adult during that period to like learn. Like it's really you know um, explain f- stagflation. It, it's just basically. Um, a stagnant economy, so like, so you're in a recession, but yep. you're also in an inflation, right? Bad. And how do you get out of that? Uh, well, I guess the '70s would be um, Volcker was the central banker who, I mean, like '70s and '80s, you were double digit interest rates, right? And like, right. people think about like when our generation thinks about interest rates, like, oh, um, you know, yeah, interest rates always were high before. It's like no, like the the average interest rate since like the beginning of the modern financial system was like four and a half percent or something. Right. It's like, we're right now at average. Um, those rates were out the, the hot, those crazy 20, 10, 20% were the outliers. Right. That's what it took during that period of time, which is super messed up. Right. And that's a long, a long way to go. Yeah. That's like credit card interest rates. Yeah. On everything. Why do you think the bank of Canada just put a, a study out that they are trying to figure out whether or not it would be a good thing for the Canadian economy to experiment with a debt jubilee. <laughs> I mean, they're, these are the papers. How, that, how are they going to do that? I don't know. It's an academic paper that they're working on right now. And Fascinating. What is that? Debt forgiveness on people's mortgages? They use it in the context of mortgages, okay. which would be similar to like TARP in the US in 08, which, okay. which was just necessary. I mean, I don't know. Like, it would have to be, if you're going to do it, and I, they talk about, I think, ninety greater than 95% loan to value, so it would pretty much be all of your insured mortgages. Yeah. Which is e- easy to do. Um, they can't bail out investors, like, it's, I right? Don't think, without, I don't know, like, 
a civil war, like really. And there's already a huge class war being fought there, like with all the, you know, tenant strikes and whatever. So um, I think that I don't think they're going to touch that, but that would be the way they would do it. Yeah, it was just, I don't know what it is. Like just call the people up and be like, what do you need to survive the next year? Right. So they're, they're trying to ward off, uh, what a complete collapse in housing, like people losing their houses. Yeah, I guess that. Yeah, I I don't know. Like, it's tough to say what the 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 paper. So it is. It's just an academic paper, but they put it on their website. Um, and I don't think they're just doing it for shits and giggles. Like, I think that they're, they're to explore something that is and and to publish that you're exploring it is meaningful. Um, I would say that they they conclude in the paper that it would have no uh, immediate impact on house prices. So they wouldn't do it for that objective or they've concluded that they couldn't do it for that objective. Sure. Um, but it would in the fullness of time have a, a good long-term impact on house prices um, and economic recovery. Okay. I mean, I don't know, like we're going to be in a brutal recession probably in next year, maybe brutal is hyperbolic. We're going to be in a recession period, sure. some some type of yeah. recession next it's year. It's certainly and not good for some individuals. Yeah, some people who are trying to win an election could probably have something to say about, you know, oh, is there something else that we could do? Um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's like crazy, crazy stuff when you think about that. Jeez. Yeah, but, uh, but like if it's bad enough here like it was in the U.S. in 08, we might have, just have to do it. And you just destroy the Canadian dollar at that point, but whatever. Right. You know. Uh, you tweeted, I'm surprised to see no journalists covering the Sunrise Home story yet. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I it, not much I can say. There's just like a lot of allegations about some crazy stuff going on. Yeah. Fraud? Yeah, fraud. And, and you know what? Like, uh, fraud is fascinating to me. I'm a big fan of the big short, the book, and the film. And, uh, Burry at the beginning of, of the film says one of the hallmarks of mania is the rapid rise in the sophistication levels and uh, instances of fraud. Okay. I think I put that in that tweet actually, but um, and this is why it fascinates me. I mean, there's been so many instances of, um, and, and not just recently, but like over the past 10 years in, in Canadian real estate yeah, where people are incentivized to, to do bad things. And you could, you know, you can, could, could contextualize it on um, fraud for shelter right sure mortgage fraud yeah fraud for shelter on rents which is becoming a huge thing right um so that's why the fraud stuff fascinates me i've been reluctant to say too much on that one because it's still kind of coming to light yeah but i just have been surprised that nobody's really dove in on it actually the toronto star published something since that because the individual who had the allegations against them was um added to a protected species committee or something like that for the okay. provincial government like okay. shortly thereafter some committee that is involved with something environmental around real estate at the pr provincial level and, and the Toronto Star, I guess, as soon as it became a political issue, they were like, oh, we're going to jump on this. But right. Yeah. So um, is mortgage fraud on the rise now or is it just continually high? Um, hmm. It's funny, like that CBC expose came out like a year and a half ago. Okay. And it was basically just, like, it was like hidden camera stuff on like people doing oh, right. document yeah. fraud. Yeah. I think that was just like a clinic on like how to do fraud. Like I think something like statistically like 10% of the Canadian population can afford the average Canadian house right now. Like, a, right. And, and not even like afford like, Oh, I have a down payment or like cash or whatever. Like could qualify for a mortgage for the average Canadian house right now. And, and you know, 
and I mentioned we're at 60% reduction in volume, but yeah. statistically, if only 10% of the population can afford a house, it should be at 90% reduction in volume. So something's making up that other 30%. And I'm not saying fraud's making up all of it, but it's probably a portion of it. Like fraud for shelter probably would increase as the barrier to entry increases. Document fraud is like people, like when I talk to like some older mortgage brokers in the industry that like don't get the struggle that our generation has, they're like, oh, no, there's, there's no way. You got to be overstating it. I'm like, no, I'm not overstating it. Like, everyone knows that you can do this. I don't know who's doing it. Like, I, don't, like, I actually don't, I don't know if any of my clients or, like, people that I know would tell me if they were because they know that, right. I, like, I'm not into that kind of shit. But yeah. skilled trades have been doing it. And, like, people try to make it a cultural issue. It's like, no, like, I, the town I grew up in was, like, all Canadian skilled trades people. They've all been doing it forever. They were writing their own job letters 10 right. years ago. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't have to be like some like cultural microcosm thing. Like it's, it's a systemic problem because the system is not designed to, and it's an easy way to fix it is have the CRA hooked up to the banks. Like, you know, what's the point of having an oligopoly if you can't hook up your two most important financial instruments or systems? Anyway, so it's totally happening. It's totally, ha it's totally rampant and it's, it's totally bad. The interesting part though is somebody who commits mortgage fraud is actually incentivized more incentivized to pay their mortgage than somebody who doesn't because if you commit fraud in Canada we have two types of fraud this is really fascinating actually so you you commit fraud and there's no financial loss right that's called soft fraud and right. it's actually not a felony um or whatever you call it well, you it it goes unnoticed really yeah it, there was is no way that they would yeah you're right um so that's their incentive it's their incentive is as soon noticed. as it creates a loss yeah then they're it's it's far more punishable. Like sure. that's where you go to jail or whatever. I don't know what the actual okay. Uh, like you know, I, mean, I haven't researched this stuff because I don't plan on doing much fraud in my life. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. The, so so that as soon as you cross the line, when they so if you create a financial loss to the banks as a result of your fraud, now you're in, in real trouble. Whereas if if there's no financial loss, like banks know this stuff. They just like they or they they'll catch people all the time. Even people who are in their mortgage like already and they're like ah whatever we're just gonna fire you as a client. Okay. So, I don't know, man. It's such a mess. Like, the fraud stuff is crazy to me. It's super crazy. And I, th I just think they're probably going to, they'll probably really um, clamp down on it during the, like, probably when things are already too bad, like, you know, but I think they're going like, to kind of let it stay as a stimulus. Same as, like, foreign investment. Um, actually, I think, like, last, when we spoke originally, it was when they just had announced that they were going to do the, the national foreign investment ban. Yep. Or maybe it was right before that, that because it was right right when they did the coalition. Yep. And um, I was like, they're going to announce some sort of crazy housing policy shortly because they are like unfireable now for three years. And it was then then it was that. But then shortly after they banned foreign investment, they released like thirteen exemptions that make it like you can just you can still buy Canadian real estate as a, a foreign direct investor. Right. So it didn't have the effect that. Or they were scared it was actually going to have the effect that 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 they intended it to have. Yeah, um, I think it did. I, I think it did right off the bat. Yeah, right. Um, there was a huge. Well, there were some. There were some issues with like uh, its impact for commercial real estate because like if you buy a re you know if you're buying uh, small small infill lot or even a, even a high rise lot in the city of Toronto um, for like fifty million dollars, like it had a house on it. Was technically within the the boundaries of that, right? Right. Um, so there was some there were some reconfigurations, but then it started adding like recreational property and like all this like 
okay, guys, like, just tell us that you're not actually banning foreign direct investment in real right. estate. It's fine. Like, nobody's really that upset about it. People stopped blaming foreign investors after 2017. Right. 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 So. Right. So uh, Trump's in a civil suit right now for, uh, what, inflating his asset value, asset value <laughs> going to the bank or whatever. Yeah. What percentage of people actually don't get a pretty favorable, um, you know, appraisal when they're going to get a loan? Well, in Canada, like the banks order the appraisals, so it's a little different. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it. Well, that's on the residential side, but on the commercial side, I think like, yeah, I mean, there's a joke, actually, I don't know, I should say it, it's funny. So that, <laughs> there's a joke in the industry that like AACI, What's like, that? that's the appraisal thing is like, it's an acronym for um, appraise according to client's instructions or something like that, but, okay. which I don't think is true. Like, I think appraisers are actually exceptional, but like, it's just like, that's, that's kind of like what some people think in the, in the commercial appraisal space. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, it is interesting. Like then the appraisal piece on the residential side is exceptionally fascinating. Cause that's kind of what's like bringing like the banks really decide how much a house is worth. Right. What by, by lending on it or not. Right. If the deal fails, then the house is overvalued and yeah, because you can't get financed. 0% of people are cash buyers. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> so they're going in with what they're, yeah. What the bank says it's worth. Yeah. And so, the velocity of price, like in a climbing market, it's, it's a hot potato. It's a game of hot potato really. Mm. Right. Climbing market. It's like, you know, you saw this in 2022, um, the appraisal values. It's like, okay, January, January, 2022 house sells for a million bucks. Uh, I'm going to go buy, uh, for 1.1 the next, you know, two days later. And then uh, another one sells for 1.2. And then as long as those keep closing and there's, you know, a new comp that's, bringing the market up, right. the values can continue to climb and the bank will continue lending on it. But then eventually, like then you saw credit get cranked up in February and now all of a sudden there's no comp and the banks are starting to appraise these things down. And this is where you got people who are like, if you bought a couple of days before that, ha that took place for 1.6 and then by the time you close, your house was actually worth 1.2. Yeah. Now all of a sudden that 400K, somebody needs to come up with that. Right. So, and that happened, that took place. That was, that was scary. That was really bad for a lot of people. I think a lot of people are still financially recovering from that or might be for I don't know, a long time, a long time that, that, and that took place in 2017 as well. Right? Yeah. This volatility in Canadian real estate only goes up, man. Yeah. I held a mortgage, uh, in Oakville, which was probably like the peak area of that 2017 yeah it was aurora was worse but yeah it was pretty it was up there and this this guy was just so underwater was completely renoing the deal you know looking for an asian buyer yeah reoriented the staircase all this stuff and was underwater like 200 grand right yeah and probably just because he like was behind by a month on construction like yeah. had he sold in it's exactly that the first week of april rather than the first week of may the difference would have literally been 400k yeah it's nuts. What uh, what percentage of the Canadian economy is housing? Residential investment is thirteen percent of GDP. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's real estate commissions and home renovations. Okay. Um, that doesn't include like tertiary stuff like lending, mortgages, fees on mortgages. Um, yeah, any of that stuff. Um, 
And then I think household net worth is like the crazy one. It's like 70% of household Ooh. net worth is in the primary residence. Not even in like real estate assets, like primary residence. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Canadians aren't that rich outside of their houses. <laughs> right. So like how politically nervous is the government for a, I guess I was going to say a real crash, but it's already already down 20%. Yeah. Yeah. When everybody's like saying that, that like a crash is coming, it's like a crash was already, it already came. Like you're dead center of it. It's just like the second part is long. Right. You know, like it crashes and then it skids along the ground for a while. That's how planes crash, right? They fall out of the sky and then they bounce along the ground. Um, the, <laughs> I think the government is, the, the rhetoric does seem to be changing. Like Trudeau literally said house prices are too high, which is like, Wow, it took you that long to realize that. But um, I think that they realize that, like, there are more people who are disenfranchised by house prices being super high. Mm. Um, Especially young voters. Yeah, and, and young people, well, nobody was worried about young people because we didn't show up to the polls. You right. know what I mean? Like, right. we literally didn't. But then you saw, like, the last U.S. election is a good example where young people were kind of pissed off about, like, the Trump stuff or whatever, or or super in favor, like, the the political conversation was very loud and, yeah. and young, that was the record voter turnout last election. And I think the same thing's going to happen in Canada mm. because young people all of a sudden realize, Oh shit, policy actually impacts me. Like all this inflation stuff, had I voted differently a couple of years ago, maybe would be a different story, right? Or yeah. all this housing stuff might've been a different story. Um, and so I think people are sufficiently pissed off to actually show up and do their job as citizens, which is to vote. Um, do I think the government is, is worried about house prices crashing? I do. I think that going back to the, the comment they made about us being similar to Europe, mm. I, I, I think that the, the part that um, it, it puts a lot of, it could put a lot of pressure on the pension system if boomers are much broker than, like we have 11 million people or something hitting retirement age in the next decade. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them are, asset rich or have been made asset rich by the you know t past 10 years of Canadian real estate sure and um that's good because it makes them able to financially take care of themselves with health care you know right. if they if they want to go to Florida or whatever like you know they pay for the things that they need or um I think if they become less asset rich that does become a, a bit more of a societal burden and I think that the reason I mentioned the Europe piece is I think we're starting to see what it means in Europe where the government's like, eh, we might have to extend the retirement age by five years or eh, we might have to reduce the pension by X amount. Um, and, and so that it's just always a thought that I've had. It's like, what, why would the government have been incentivized to make like to sell out the entire younger generation Yeah, to make boomers asset rich? And that's the only thing I could think of, like that, why they would have that incentive to do it. That the that the they're going to be short on the pension. Not even like maybe maybe like that would be an extreme scenario, but sure. it's not even. It's just that like it makes it easier to take care of your that older generation, or if they can take care of themselves, right? You know, financially, because. Right. Um, we don't have a population, like nobody has a population pyramid anymore, but we have like this like hourglass. We have like the old generation and the young generation. Right. Like there's like two huge humps in the Canadian population pyramid. And it's like the easiest way to give money to the older generation at the expense of the younger generation is 
housing inflation. Like bar none, there's no more efficient way to do it. And you get to do it with leverage, right? right. So it's like the young people don't even need to have money. They right. literally just need to have access to credit. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, so I don't know, but like that would be my hunch would be that the pension system would be a lot better off if boomers were rich. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So, um, you know, Trudeau saying housing prices are too high. That's a factor of the average home price in comparison to the average income. Yeah. I mean, like on a price to income basis, we're one of the worst countries in the world. Right. If not the worst, it really depends on like the month of data that you're using, but like typically the worst. I've, I've seen, I think you probably posted, it was a graph of us compared to the U S home prices versus income. And it's terrifying. Yeah. Like it's insane. Yeah. And, and yeah, and that's like, yeah, real wages. I mean, and a big piece of that is like, uh, and this is where like the population growth piece comes into, into question is, um, IMF just stated that Canada will be, will actually outgrow the U S on a, um, on a GDP growth uh, next year. So like one, we'll see 1.6% GDP growth. They'll see 1.5% barely outgrown. But to me, it doesn't matter if our, if our GDP grows at 1.6, but our, uh, population is growing at three right? or anything more than 1.6, then it's still a net loss for the quality of life in Canadians. And that's, that's just nominal GDP. So unadjusted for inflation. Now you consider real GDP growth and real GDP growth per capita and Canadians are getting poorer at a very, very rapid rate. And you can feel it like you literally like, like all of the data, all the polling, everything that you've, you've seen that like of how Canadians are feeling for the first time ever, like we're fully defeated. Like this sucks. It's bad. Right. Right. I mean, you, you go, whatever you go to the gas station, you go to the grocery store, you go to buy lumber, anything. And if you're on a fixed salary, you're poor. Yeah. And you can see it like Canadians are dealing with inflation now by, um, r- racking up debt. Yeah. Like credit card debt is soaring. Household savings are falling. Right. Like what's next? Like it's, you know, like auto loan delinquencies are increasing. Like it's just like, okay, let's go down the order of necessities of what things, what things people need to pay first. And what's the last one on the list? Why do you think powers, power of sales are up 300%? Right. Whew. Uh, yeah, you posted, um, the last time mortgage rates were this high. That yeah. was a good one. 2001. Yeah. yeah. 2001 mortgage payment, 1600 bucks. 2001 income, 4500 bucks. 2023 mortgage payment, 5300 bucks. 2023 income, 5700 bucks. That's like a $300 delta yeah. between average income and mortgage payment. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why nobody in Canada can afford and, and like, that's that's just the payment that you'd actually end up with. You have to also qualify at, like, 8% now. Right, right? so. Right, because of the stress test. Stress test, yeah, so. <sighs> yeah, this is why, no, like, this is why the market is, and, and it's so funny, right, because I tweeted a long time ago, I was like, realtors should stop hoping for house prices to go up because mm. uh, an unaffordable, and this is, like, goes back to the Europe thing. It's like, when people can't afford houses, they don't buy houses. Right. And they don't, you know, so transaction volume falls off of a cliff. And this is what an unaffordable market feels like. This is what a market that just like doesn't work feels like that. You can't run an economy like this. Like this is like not, and this is why I think a lot of the, like a lot of countries around the world are, are really struggling with it. Like obviously economic problems are everywhere, but um, you know, 
as quality of life improves, people are disincentivized. Like the, the economy is disincentivized to grow on its own. So like um, India just fell uh, below the replacement rate from birth perspective for the first time ever. Which no one would have ever guessed ever, 20, right? 30 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as that country becomes middle class, same thing happened in China, yeah. right? And, uh, and, and, and China's greatest claim to fame was pulling so many people out of, out of poverty. Yep. Um, and that's great. Like that, that's a, a great thing to do. But uh, now their population is expected to drop from 1.6 billion to 900 million right. within our lifetime. Um, I honestly wonder, and this is like one of the things that keeps me up at night. Like I, I'm not, this isn't a thesis by any means, but like if we've actually just hit peak population and like um, capitalism that relies on like growth, 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 yeah. um, and, and, or in an inflation or de- devaluation of a dollar, um, if the population piece, which is probably a big component of growth, is done, and mm-hmm. like we actually have to completely rethink like the whole mentality, because like since the beginning of the modern financial system, it's like population has always gone up. Right. What if what if it's not? Because if you just do the math, it's like okay, if China depopulates at the rate that I just mentioned, if India falls below the replacement rate, like all these things are predictable if they're yeah. at those rates. The only country that we know, or the only area that is left to be an emerging market is Africa. And if Africa, I think is supposed to hit two and a half billion people uh, by 2040 or something like that. So is that going to account for the, or or offset the uh, decline everywhere else? Right. I don't think so. No. So if we're in a declining uh, global populace, like what happens then? Right. It has to, it has to go to a more sustainable model on all fronts. Yeah. You stop building stuff. It's adaptive reuse. You have enough resources. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's the weird one. Right. So, um, I guess touching on your course a little bit, the, the average, you know, or the new real estate investor now, you know, the old model was just buy whatever you can because it's going to go up. They're just looking at capital appreciation. Yeah. And now they have, they, they have to become like a cap rate investor. They have to actually look at, at their cash flow and, you know, does that does that help solve some of the housing crisis? More and more people, you know, building a duplex or building I think a so. triplex. I would hope so. Like that. I mean, I, we don't have any other option. Mm-hmm. Like really, the the only other option is we continue on the path that we're on. Mm-hmm. And we know, like, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's not working. Right. You know, so high rise, uh, you know, municipal planning, all these things, like, you know. I think all like that system, it didn't succeed. Um, it had a chance for a long period of time, and I, not that like anything wrong with high rise. And I think we'll continue seeing high rise construction. Um, I think that it'll decline as a portion of the total supply that's going to mm-hmm. be created because <laughs> high rise requires a buyer who's willing to lose money or to be cash flow negative, as we saw from the urbanation report, um, to to be willing to to take those units right for the builder to. Um, be incentivized to build them. Right. And those that's gone. And so we've seen those uh, pre-sales drop from like 30,000 to 10,000. Yeah. 30,000 last year, 10,000 this year. That Those are your housing starts in five years or four years and housing completions in five years and six years. Um, who's going to fill the gap right now? I think it's, I do, I think it's uh, citizens, citizen investors, right? Or citizen developers. Um, I think it's DIY density. I think it's. I think a lot of it's going to happen without building permits, really. And I'm not saying that like not financial advice, but like I just think it will. It's just, like it. It's an easier thing to take place without permits, especially. I don't even think it's going to be brand new stuff, right? Like 
know, the, the economics, let's assume that we're just talking about Toronto, but like in most major Canadian cities, your land cost is too high and your construction costs are too high mm-hmm. to tear, to go buy a vacant piece of land or tear a house down sure. and build a fourplex. Yeah. Never so, mind your time cost. Right. But, you know, as we discussed earlier, you have now the second highest or third highest square, square footage per capita in the world. So like, do we even have a housing crisis or do we just have a square footage allocation problem? Mm, right. Okay. Like uh, affordability on a per square foot basis hasn't actually decreased all that much. Canadians are getting bigger houses and, um, and house prices are continuing to go up as well. And so now we have like, and I think this also coincides with, and this is kind of like my way out, out there theory of like, what could be the the end game for the Canadian real estate market is like, what if we end up with a a 90 style, uh, you know, just flat market, Yeah. yeah, flat market for five, six years. Yeah. Boomers now are starting to sell. Sure. Within the next five or six years. And they're all selling assets that our generation can't afford. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're all selling McMansions that nobody from our generation even wants that much space or can afford that much space. Yeah. And basically all of these McMansions are just going to be absorbed by investors and turned into multiplexes. Mm. So is that what, um, you know, and I don't know if it's true or not. I saw some sort of projection that was like by 2030, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street will own 65% of the U.S. housing market. If they continued at the current rate, that statistic would be correct. But like, and and it, it's plausible. Like, yeah. but yeah, that 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 to me is the statistic. I mean, like, look at the um, core did this in Canada. They said they wanted to buy a billion dollars worth of Canadian real estate, and they offloaded some because the economics didn't work. But like, the deals that they that worked for them were the ones that were multiplexes. I mean, excess demand should create housing. Like, right. and and it and it did through condos and through all that stuff. Um, but that era is over because it depended on low rates. So now it's like, okay, well, how do we creatively use stuff that already is, the system that already is broken, repurpose existing square footage, like duplex, I'm not even saying fourplex everything, duplex a McMansion at 100 bucks a buildable square foot mm. or 200 bucks even if you're like really top of the line because sure. the square footage already exists and just redoing all the finishes for 200 bucks a square foot. You have like a seven or, yeah, probably $700 per square foot arbitrage against your competitor right yeah he's yeah. building at $800 or total creation costs are $800 a square foot yeah including land soft costs hard costs etc and no dcs right mm-hmm. like all of these things like it, it's this i i just i don't see a world in which that doesn't end up being like the major creator of supply if, maybe not the major creator of supply but like a heap start playing a much bigger role in supply creation over the next uh, little while. And I think it is like, it's totally in line with what you just said with like BlackRock, all of these institutions buying and owning houses. It's like, they're going to buy all of these houses off of the citizen invet- and or citizen developers like myself and you know, the, the people who listen to the podcast, um, cause they, the numbers make sense and they don't want to be in the business of duplexing houses themselves. They want to buy portfolios of duplexed houses. Right. And it all goes in line with like that, like we'll own nothing and be happy thing, which to be honest with you, I really don't have like, I, I think like a lot of people like on, TikTok and whatever, like, you know, it's easy to be like an edgy teenager and be like, oh, it's like, we'll own nothing and be happy. It's like, also, like, most young people can't change a light bulb, you know? Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? Like, should they own a house? (laughs) Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. You know, we're like the least handy generation ever. Like, go own anything else you want, but like a house just might not be it for you. Mm. Right? Yeah. So that, like, I don't know, like, that's that's kind of like the summary of the whole thing for me. It's like... Yeah, that's the direction we're headed. I, I don't, I actually think it's like maybe okay. Like it's not, it's not evil. Like, it, yeah. 
you know, it's like, yep. it, it could be just because like, you, especially if you're a young Canadian person, you're buying like super depreciated housing stock. Like, you know, I just bought a 200 year old house like, yeah. and I'm, I'm pretty handy. Yeah. So, but Same. like, you know, most guys I know, like, or like a lot of the people that I see out there are, they should not be owning 200 year old houses, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? That's a very good point. Yeah. I had to re-insulate my basement. Did you? Yeah. What'd you do it with? No, no, I had someone do it, but it was like, yeah, it's a rubble foundation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but like, <clears throat> you know, I guess, I guess going back historically, the home ownership thing was, I guess, um, you know, the not manufactured, but like the American dream after the war. Yeah. Right. It was like everyone should own a home. Right. Before that, it wasn't necessarily the case. Right. And we've kind of, I guess, run that experiment. And now are we going back to, you know, the European landlord model? I think so. Like, I think it just becomes like a modernized version of like feudalism. Right. Like it, I, I think it like to me, like if you look at Adam Smith, wealth of nations, like Smithian economics, say specialization and division of labor. And like, it goes back to like, I'm good at talking about real estate on a podcast. Yeah. I, I'm not like, I'm not bad at being a, a homeowner sure. or like fixing my own house, yeah. but like, it's not the best use of my time. And, um, and I think like, you know, as we get into an increasingly specialized economy where you have, and especially in Canada, like where it's like a lot of knowledge work, people working in tech, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, is the best use of your time, like figuring out what's wrong with your house? Right. No, it might be the best use of time for your landlord who is providing thousands of those houses to thousands of people who are doing other more contributory things to the economy. Yeah. If like as a, as a, um, as like a species or an economy that we, we figured out like time scarcity and like not having to work so hard and all of these other things and had time to like ha be able to do like the hobby work of fixing the house, which is like, I love to do that. I love gardening. I love like landscaping. Like just, I love like just fucking around doing shit around the house. Love it, man. Like yeah. it honestly yeah. would do it all day, every day if yeah. I could yeah. trust me. Yeah. But we don't like most people are in our generation don't have the time. Mm -hmm. And that's really the challenge. Right. That, that really is. Um, more and more young people want to live in smaller spaces. They want no yard, small yard, et cetera, et cetera. Um, like <laughs> it's like the same people who are complaining, like, y you know, like, Oh, or, or like that are like super into like urbanism and like all of these walkability parks, yeah. this, that, that are like also like, you'll own nothing and be happy. It's like, well, you're like, if you're, if you own a, or if you own a condo, you're like functionally a, like a tenant, you're renting. Yeah. You're renting the maintenance of your house. Right. Really. right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Absolutely. I don't know, the whole thing's just funny to me. It's fascinating. Hmm. Uh, I guess shifting gears, did you follow the, I don't want to, well, I, like the bank failures in the U.S.? Yeah. Where are we at with that? Was that not, and am I might correct me if I'm wrong, was that not a bigger default than in 08 as far as dollars, like uh, nominally? Nominal, yeah. Yeah. Well, the c combined amount was nominal. I mean, like, what, there's way more money out there than in 08. Yeah, yeah, yeah. money's worth a lot less. Yeah. And and there's a lot more of it. Um yeah, I, I think that this whole thing is like worked itself out for the most part. Um it's hard for banks to make money in rising rate economy, in a high rate economy. Yeah. Hard harder. Um and the the SVB thing was like a duration mis mismatch. I think um, Signature was like probably a little bit more of a scary one because it was like a lot of real estate loans. Um, mm -hmm. 
but it was a lot of multifamily stuff. Um, to me, like the big, the big question mark is like what, like, well, okay. So if we're thinking like, what's going to be, what's going to be the, the, whatever the first domino or whatever, yeah. like, I think like China's real estate market is like the scary part. Right. Yeah. What's going on there? Uh, 50% of the developers are insolvent. Okay. <laughs> um, they, their house prices grew like 60% in the past couple of years. Shenzhen saw like 60% year over year growth. Jeez. This is why like when foreign direct investors come from Chinese markets, especially, and they're like, Oh, your market's growing at 20%. Like no big deal. You know? Right. Sure. Why not? Right. Um, and so like, it's just a relativity thing. Right. Um, yeah, it's like, I think that's probably the big one. It's like, it was, does that become contagious? Evergrande country garden has like a $1.4 billion loan, uh, bond payment that they've, already said they're going to miss. We're kind of just waiting for that to happen. And that's a Chinese company. Yeah. That, that's the biggest real estate developer in the world. And then Evergrande is the second biggest real estate. And they already declared bankruptcy. That's why I have my hat. <laughs> and they're, uh, and they're only in China. Uh, it's a good question. A, a lot of the, so some of these companies actually do have holdings in Canada. I don't know if they're doing stuff in the U S but it's like RBC lent or invested in, Evergrande, like Mm. there's a lot of contagion, potential for contagion. I see. So it's not like, oh, it's just happening in China. Who cares? It's the, you know, the communist government that's going to suffer. No, it's these international banks that loaned on it. That's the scary part. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I actually don't even know if the the Chinese government really would care that much if it collapsed because like they don't really see houses as a productive asset or like land as a productive asset, right? Like, um, like, well, it's not. Housing isn't a productive asset, right? It's a place to live. Like, it's not, it's not like... Uh, a, a mine or you know farmland yeah. as an example like it doesn't produce anything um and so i think it probably would be it will it's similar to our country like it would be a good thing if house prices collapse everybody could afford stuff mm. and it would stop it would it would free up a lot of idle capital or stagnant capital to go do productive things in the economy which is a big issue that we have in canada right so you're more concerned about the the domino being the chinese I, I just think it's like the most identifiable domino. Like it's the thing of, of global systemic significance and size that could do it. I don't, I can't, unless there's like some black swan that I just like that, well, that would be a black swan. Cause nobody would know right. that it's coming. But, but yeah, I mean, it just seems like that's the one, right? Like it's, it's there. Like mm-hmm. you can see it. Like nobody's saying like, I, I don't know, like what, what, is the way that it plays out in like a way that doesn't hurt anybody is like the Chinese government takes possession of all of those development companies and they create a social development thing. It's like, that's fine. They still overbuilt. They still have huge cash and debt obligations to companies all around the world. Like all of those different things. It's like, I don't know, like is that, it's not going to solve the problem. There's still ripples. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So that's the big one. And then even if you just analyze it on like, like Canadian basis, cause I've done a lot of um, research around this. It's like, how much well we did a whole episode on it with the like with Evergrande and like what's Canada's exposure to Chinese capital. Mm. Sorry, Canada's real estate exposure to Chinese capital. Right. Um, actually interestingly, two thousand fifteen or sixteen, um uh Peter Routledge, who is now the uh, superintendent of financial institutions, so OSFI, the guy who regulates Canadian banks, okay. did a study when he was at National Bank, he was an economist there, about um how many foreign direct investors were purchasing Canadian real estate in like 2015 to like 2017 that that era where things were getting really crazy right and it was like clear that it was a lot of Chinese capital coming into Canada and really inflating prices um and it was like 
a third of um, the lower mainland. That's like Van- your Vancouver area. Third of the lower ma- real estate in the lower mainland was um, going to to foreign direct investors from China. Um, w- one in ten pre-construction condos in Toronto, like all this stuff. So wow, that, it's not like they sold all that in the meantime, right? So, question becomes like, does do we see a flight to quality like we saw in 2015, 2016, 2017? That's when China's real estate market was getting super volatile, going up and down and that was that 60% year-over-year growth in, in Shenzhen. Um, a lot of Chinese capital came here because they want real estate and they couldn't get it there and um, it was scary and volatile there. So do we see that happen? And it's bullish for Canadian real estate. Right. Or the things get bad there and people have to cover the position and liquidate their Canadian assets mm. to cover back there. Mm. Yeah. Scary, scary stuff, man. It's just weird. There's so many question marks right now, and it could go either way. Like, it literally could go flight to quality, or it could go right. massive capital exodus out of Canadian real estate and back into China. Right. Uh, last time on the podcast, we talked about the uh, the death of the realtor. Yeah. Uh, there's a big class action lawsuit against yeah. against the Toronto, what, yeah. Toronto Realtor Board or Toronto Realtors? Yeah, Treb, Crea. Um, a couple of different brokerages are named in it. There's a similar one in the States too about price fixing on buyer side commissions. So it's on, it's about price fix, fixing. Yeah. Uh, price fixing and anti-competitive behavior. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's going to happen? It's an interesting question. Um, a lot of people are like, there's no legs to stand on. Um, most people from my, uh, industry. Would, Brokers. Would argue that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there there's some merit to it that um, there are fixed buy side fees that people sure. say that you have to offer yeah. to a buyer broker to compel them to come to a listing. Right. Um, I mean, it's so much so that like I'm really not even like allowed to talk about this stuff. Like, or agents aren't supposed to talk about their own fees. Or I don't know. I should probably read up on the ethics stuff, but. Um, I'm going to talk about it anyway. So, <laughs> um, so that, that's, that's sort of what it's saying is like agents are saying that you have to offer two and a half percent in Toronto right. or two, 2% at, you know, in areas outside of Toronto and that it hasn't really made way for, you know, compelling alternative commission models, mm. um, which like is plausible. Like everybody, like I, I think, I don't know. And, and I think the other side of it is, you know, is there a degree of blackballing, where if an an agent sees a, a listing that doesn't isn't is offering a lower buy side commission, they're less likely to show mm. it. So legally, when we bring the ethics back into it, and I am trying to be very careful with my words here, but um, if if a realtor does that, they would technically be violating their fiduciary duty, right? Because they are putting their own interests ahead of yours by saying, "I'm not going to show this perfect house to my client because right. I'm not getting paid enough," right? right? Does that happen? This is where I think the lawsuit is going to have a lot of trouble proving that all of these things take place. Like, sure. Hypothetically, do all of these things take place? I don't think anybody would argue that they don't. Right. I don't know what movie it's from, but it's like it doesn't matter what you know. It's what you can prove in court, right? And, yeah. and that's that's going to be the difficulty, I think. Similar thing in the U.S., right? Same thing like NAR. Redfin just left NAR. Like, there's so much stuff like going in the U.S. where it's like, and and then NAR allowed people to list for zero dollars ahead of this lawsuit. There's a whole class class action lawsuit similarly in the U.S. I mean, 
I think that the real estate industry actually is like when people were saying like the Uberification of real estate and stuff like that, Uber's not an advanced enough technology to get rid of a realtor. Right. AI is an advanced enough technology to get rid of a realtor. It really is. How does that play out? Like, I don't know. It's funny because like I'm, I'm working with a company right now where they're like, hey, like they, they've taken like a handful of like realtors who they consider to be intelligent. Sure. Across the country. Yeah. And they're like, answer questions for this AI. Okay. And we want the AI to be basically be able to think about real estate the way that you are. And they're like, you know, it's cool. It's super crazy, yeah. right? I mean, large language models aren't, I don't think, advanced enough yet to, like, do the critical thinking piece. But, yep. like, I think if you give it all of the data points and definitions, my job isn't to think for my clients as a real estate professional, right? It's to present and aggregate all of the information and disseminate it to them in a super digestible way and say, here's best case scenario, here's the worst case scenario. If either of those happen, would you still be comfortable making the purchase that you're going to make today? An AI can do that. Right. Um, I, I think that real estate professionals have redefined their role to not be that, but I think that it's getting back to that now that it's not fielding offer nights and, you know, like bidding wars and hyping up stuff and like making Instagram videos of properties and whatever, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think that the role got super conflated with like being an influencer Yeah. for the past little while. And I think that there's... Um, the co- if you bre- boil it down to its core competencies, I really think that like, I, I've, I've always believed this, like for years, I wrote a blog uh, like ages ago on LinkedIn um, talking about something called computer assisted real estate. Like okay. Care. Super sexy acronym too. Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah, I should yeah. trademark that. But um, <laughs> it's like CAD, right? Computer assisted design. It's like you can still be the critical thinker, the designer, whatever it is, but you like, the, and I think that technology is really going to change the way that like realtors will be customer service people. They'll help people with like the um, qualitative decisions, mm-hmm. et cetera. Most realtors shouldn't be doing the quant, like everything beyond the customer service piece. Like everyone's like, Oh, they're glorified door openers. It's like, okay, if they are, then let's do that and strap like some really powerful technology to them. And now customers get a way better experience. Right. So anyway, that's the direction I, I see it going. I don't think realtors will die. I just think they will open far more doors and they will have a computer Doing the rest. Assistant doing everything that they, yeah, that a computer can do better. Yeah, certainly can do better and quicker. Uh, a bunch, like, there's all these stats on on realtors, like, you know, whatever, 1% of realtors do 90% of the commissions mm. and stuff. In a market like it is today, like, how many people just go back to their other jobs? This is the million-dollar question. Um it is not super expensive to hold a real estate license. In, mm. And this is why you have 77,000 realtors in the province of Ontario. Most yeah. realtors per capita in the world. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, like one in 50 something people in the GTA is a realtor. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think they already have, or they already were there, right? Like if you were working with an agent who wasn't a full-time realtor, mm. you were already using the Uber of real estate. Right. You know, right? Because they were giving you a kickback, or or you were absolutely getting demolished on price, and right. so you were giving that you know that kickback back to the market. <laughs> like there was some economic efficiency that, or inefficiency as a result of that transaction, mm. um, and that that already took place. And I think that there was a lot of like fee cutting. There's a lot of kickbacks, and this is all public stuff. Like you can see it on on websites. A lot of people advertise or like X percent or right fifty percent you know, kickback. Um, so th- there was that, and then there's people who already have like other jobs, um, and like being influencers or whatever. <laughs> no, but um, but other stuff, right? And and I think that like so I think a lot of that 
a lot of people never left. Like, you know, they were always kind of half in it. Yeah. And so it, and it was kind of easy to, to come back, uh, to, I, I've, I've joked that like, you know, a lot of these job vacancies are be, being filled by realtors. Like, yeah. um, but where, what else are they going to do? Like, I know people who have made, who, who went from making like 500 K a year to like making less than a hundred grand a year. Right. Right. Like, and the lifestyle creep and all of this stuff, like <laughs> nobody, it's not like they were like, Oh, like I'm going to be fiscally responsible and just keep my lifestyle where, you know, just in case and they've got a Benz. Yeah. Several or like yeah. whatever, like not the, 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 the best Benz, like they're not yeah. CLA stuff. Yeah. Like and the CLAs were returned two years ago. Like the G wagons are getting returned now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh man, it's a mess. Really a mess. In private lending space, you see a lot of it, like oh, yeah. tons, like, and just leverage and, you know, toys and cottages C and car leases. Oh yeah, man. Scary, scary, scary stuff. Uh, where, cause last time we were kind of, we we're still in the COVID mindset and we're talking about the exodus and then mm -hmm. where are we at with the re-urbanization, -urban mm. uh, you know, like I don't know anything about office space and it yeah. scares the crap out of me. I know it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, so if you look at like the U S is probably where you're only going to get like real data. Cause, um, going back to the pension system, the primary owner of office space in Canada is a lot of it's pension system and conspiracies aside, it's all private market stuff. So like they can just market to, Oh, there was no, like there haven't been any transactions. Nobody's buying or selling office buildings <clears throat> right, right now. Right. So it's like, okay, well it's still worth a billion dollars sure. based on that valuation. Um, New York is a good example where you're seeing, there was a building in New York, <clears throat> a, um, a smaller, office building in New York that sold for 25% of the construction cost of that building. <sighs> yeah. And oh. it was built like, I don't know, three, four years ago. And then, yeah, it just sold for 25% in power sale or in foreclosure. Um, and, and so like, you know, big, excellent office brokers from, from New York and other U S cities, but New York's the easiest like comp. Um, yeah. I think the majority of the office market in the States is, is in New York. Um, he estimates that like 80% of, um, office owners are in negative equity in their property, right? Eighty <laughs> percent. Yeah. So it is scary, and it's funny. Like I've I've said for a long time, it's like the sooner that we can really, really meaningfully think about the adaptive reuse of office buildings, it comes back to the, the citizen developer stuff. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, "Oh, it's so hard." It's like converting a a boat to a a car or something. It's like, okay, well, converting raw land to a high rise full of houses is like converting a spaceship. Yeah. To, to a car. Yeah. You know, pick your poison. Like it's, you know, what else is hard is developing real estate period. Like, let's just like hypothesize that this might be equally hard, but still meaningful. Like you're going to, what else is the alternative? You're just going to sit and let it there, let it sit there and be vacant. Right. But a lot of people are like office bulls. Like, um, I think unemployment is going to crank up the bargaining power for employers to get people back to the office. Mm. Um, but like, I just don't, I don't like, I don't see a world in which we go back to like, nobody wants to go to the office. People, no. even if like, even if I'm wrong and like 50% of people do want to go to the office, it's still 50%. Yeah. Right. Like I don't know anybody who really is like, I'm so ready to get back into the office. Like miss that. Yeah. You know, but let's assume that they're out there and I'm just not talking to them. Even if it's 75%, still 25% less people than in a market that's growing because our office universe is growing in the city of Toronto. Right. Um, I don't know. Like, yeah, I, I think we have to start be, like having a real conversation about converting these assets. Calgary's doing it. 6 million square feet. It's going great. Right. To residential. Yeah. Yeah. 
but at, but like Calgary's office market was super depressed because they had twenty something percent vacancy. But like <sighs> Toronto's at thirteen, right? Right. Um. So so they measure like footfall. They call it occupancy, but the number of people going into office buildings. Okay. Um, as a indexed against pre COVID, so so it's not like assuming COVID was like. Like, because we know, okay, let's let's say COVID footfall. Like, people weren't always in the office, right? A lot right. of people were already working from home or, like, out in meetings or whatever. Um, so, let's say pre-COVID was 100. Um, tr- Toronto is at, like, 62% okay. of pre-COVID footfall on a weekly basis. Right now? Yeah. Okay. Wednesday being the busiest day at, like, oh, you know what? It's actually, sorry, it's in the 50s. It's, like, 53, but 62 is on Wednesday. So, okay. so peak day, 62% of pre-COVID. Uh Mondays and Fridays obviously being the slowest. Everybody's staying home long weekend. So you have a three day work week now, let's just say. Like <laughs> really? three day office work week. Yeah. Which is fine. Like these are these are like if there's any time to have the like the conversation about like should do we need a six day five day work week or whatever, right? Yeah. Like let's do it. Let's have these conversations. But the point is if that building let's say it was hundred percent occupied for three days a week, you still have greater than half of the time that that building is occupied mm-hmm. for that's just, it's just sitting there. So the empty shell, like I would like to think that as a society with all these smart people who have billions of dollars to invest in these assets could figure out a better way to use that space. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be residential. Like I get that, you know, I get the size of floor plates. Like I understand why this is hard. So floor plates are too big. They're like an acre, no sunlight, blah, blah, blah. Totally get it. Like that's fine. Yeah there are barriers to entry to all types of housing creation. Like let's just figure out something to do with this rather than letting a minimum of 25% of square footage sit vacant for four days a week. Worst case scenario. It can't like, it can't even financially make sense long-term. No, and it won't, but that's like, that's a 10 to 20 year problem. And and they're treating it like a 10 to 20 year problem rather than being like, Oh, let's get ahead of this. They're all like, Oh, we'll we'll be dead by then. And who gives a shit about young people wanting to live in urban areas? Right. You know, like, why do we need to turn, like, I like that office building and I don't think it should be filled with young people who want to live right downtown centerized because they're all super well-located assets. Oh yeah. Like, and I, I don't, I don't care to convert this to affordable housing. <laughs> okay, cool. Whatever. Like, I don't know. I, like really, it, and a lot of it is the reconfiguration of space is tough. That's why it took so long in Calgary. It's like, you can't just take a bunch of office tenants who spent millions of dollars fitting out their space and be like, Go move to that building because right. you're in a B building and that's a residential building now. But it, does, it also doesn't have to all happen at the same time. Like you could build out a floor residential and then I don't know. Like, you know, like it's time we get creative. Yeah. That's that's like, I'll leave it at that, right? Yeah. Uh, did you, f- I'm sure you did, but uh, the the whole, uh, the Greenbelt fiasco. Yeah. So Doug Ford and, you know, for people outside of, you know, Ontario, we had this protected area called the Greenbelt and, our premier came in and said, what, it's all, it's all fair game now. We're going to develop it or no, some of it or no, you know what? I mean, this was a good one. This is a good question. So, um, there's, there's a process for lands to be removed from the green belt. And there was prior to, yeah, every 10 years, like in the, in the legislature of the green belt from the McGinty government, okay. um, there was a process every 10 years it was supposed to be reviewed. Yeah. And lands could come out. I was actually on a municipal government um, committee aggregating, doing a ton of property research on what lands should be suggested right. to be removed by the municipal government 
from the green belt to the provincial government. And, um, there's all presented to council, you know, <laughs> and that's every 10 years. I think. So the last one was 2015. That was in 2015. I was, I was a co-op student at a municipal government. Doing okay. that. They, they had waited two years. It would have been like fully legal and they could have just said it was fully legal. And it's not even that it wasn't, uh, I guess, it, I guess it was just like, but they, I think they just jumped the gun. And I, but I think I, my, my guess would be they probably jumped the gun because we were in an urgent housing situation and there are pieces of land that are located on major arterial roads that could be developed quickly. Sure. And should be developed quickly. Um, and if it was going to accomplish that goal, that would probably be the, their incentive to do it. I think that the way things have been handled since then by the government been pretty bad. I think that probably the way that they were handled leading up to it was pretty bad, but I, I don't, I think this, I don't think the spirit of the whole thing was, was bad. No, and, no, I don't think it was malicious or anything like that. No. Yeah. Well, what's that? It's like a uh, Hanlon's razor, right? It's yeah. like uh, never attribute to malice. What could easily be attributed to s- stupidity. Yeah. Um, and, exactly. And, and so I, I just like, I think that this is, it, it's such a fascinating thing. Cause it really, really blew up. Like it's, it's like the political conversation in this country right now. Yeah. And, and, um, it, and, it, and explain, like, explain what happened. Like, he reversed his decision. Yeah. Like, based on what? Yeah. Political pressure? Yeah, political pressure, a handful of resignations. Like, it, it's really blown, like, that That will be the scandal that will take them down, right? Yeah. Like, and it's 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 challenging because the Greenbelt in itself, like, is, we have this, like, this um, infighting happening on the left right now where it's like, um, you know, you, I would assume, like, I think, you know, political left, um, environmental, political left, people who want housing affordability. Mm-hmm. These are two factions that are like, they, they don't, I, I think they're just starting to realize that they don't like each other. Well, they're completely at odds. And, yeah. And so, and I think that like the Greenbelt and a thoughtful reconsideration of it is super important. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, I think that from a policy perspective, it was actually like, could have been executed a lot better, but it, but it was executed and people got obsessed with the idea of the green belt. Like the funny part is like the people, I think from my perspective, a lot of the people who are like really, really like super into the green belt, like think that the, that Toronto ends at like the 401, you know, and then it's Muskoka. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, like you and I spend a lot of time in nature, right? All my friends spend a lot of time in nature. Like I love nature, you know, I, there's a lot of it. I'm a resident of the green belt. Like I live in that area, you know, and I, I walk those trails like regularly. Um, the, and, and most people who are like in that world, like not super like a care less, right. It's like, there's a lot of this stuff. Yeah. A lot of it's like swamp. A lot of it's like, you know, there's an an agricultural land that kind of got like grouped in. Farmers were really mad when this policy first came out, which Mm -hmm. is a super important piece that a lot of people miss. Um, I think it goes with a lot of things that you, that you see and hear in Canada that is, um, there's just a lack of public education around this stuff, mm. you know, financial education. A lot of people don't understand how housing policy works, land use works, uh, the environment yeah. around land use works. Um, it, it's just, it just fascinates me how, like how that one spiraled out of control. I've like, I've, it, I think about this so much, um, the green belt stuff. And like to the point that like, I, I, nobody's done like an exhaustive, exhaustive look at like, the green belt from start to finish. Okay. And like, I think, I think that society like needs that mm. and like deserves it right now because like a lot of people actually don't know really the what's going on. Right. You know? Right. Anyway. So, 
I'm glad you asked because it's a, it's a fascinating one. Yeah. So a bunch of it was, you know, made that it was, you know, pulled out of the green belt and you could develop it. Right. And then a lot of people bought it. A lot of people traded, uh, you know, some deals didn't even close and he completely reversed his decision. Right. And and now there's an RCMP investigation. Yeah. I guess that's the new piece, right? Like that. Yeah. They announced it yesterday. And what is that like? And is that in, you know, in the spirit of, okay, was like how it was done? Like there was kick kickbacks or. Yeah. I guess that, that w- that's what they would be trying to figure out is like, was there like any like criminal activity that took place? Cause I mean, like, again, it's, um, a lot of it is like, you know, were these things done through proper channels? Cause I, I was under the indication that like a lot of the stuff was done or with the objective of being politically correct. And mm-hmm. I, and, and you know, by the sounds of it, some of the people who were part of it were under that impression as well. Right. Um, were there things taking place that were like uh, illegal? I, I don't know. I guess that's what their, their objective is to try and find out. But I think right. the impl- the political implication is that like, it seems like the court of public opinion has sort of like decided yes. that it was illegal. Yes. I don't know. Like, I guess we'll find out right. in short order. But um, I think that, like, this is a tough one. And, like, this isn't to say whether or not I think it's okay, but insider trading isn't a thing in real estate, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it would be like you knowing that a new secondary plan is going to, or this land's going to get upzoned. Yeah. You go buy that land. Like, that, people do that all the time. 100%. Um, this is different because it's like land that was specifically, like, the idea was that that was never going to change right. on those things. And then it did. And the parcels were very like, you know, conveniently located based on existing ownership. But I think that, and and, and it could very much be the government's problem, like mm. that they maybe tried to coordinate with people who could help advance those sites. Shouldn't have done that or whatever it was. Right. Um, I guess we'll see. Right. Like, but Yeah fascinating whole thing to take place especially fascinating because like the green belt really is one of those things that from my perspective is like it's not discussed enough as as a a huge obstruction to housing creation 100 percent, right 100 like really not giant strip in prime yeah. you know prime gta yeah. housing creation yeah, yeah like toronto it was like toronto was like the gta was like oh like why are house prices so high in Vancouver? It's like, oh, because they have mountains. It's like, oh, why, why don't we make some mountains? You know, like, yeah, yeah. We do that? Well, we did. Yeah, they're done, right? Like, I don't, I, it, it is like, I just think it's, it, it's unfairly, or it, it should be more discussed as, as a huge obstruction to housing creation. But like, that, me saying that is like, I know some people are not going to like that, mm. you know? But yeah, how many but of those it, people walk the green belt? I, I, that's my thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, that, and that's my, like my big challenge with the whole thing. It's like, let's come sit in the forest with me and we'll have a chat about it. Yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, like, you know, come up to Muskoka, it's just north of the 401. <laughs> right. Right. It's like, you know, all these en- environmental protectionist people who are at odds with, you know, the housing supply people. It's like, they've never been in an airplane before. Right. It's like they've yeah. never flown around the right. country and seen right. how vast even the United States is. There's, right. you know, millions of acres that are completely uninhabited. Right. Right. Yeah, it is interesting, right? And, like, I, I you know, you're starting to see more and more of this, like, uh, discussion around um, 
whether or not Canada is like becoming very alone in their like um, environmental like pledges, right? Because mm. like seems like the rest of the world's kind of like abandoned a lot of that stuff. Um, in look, like I actually like really like the environment. Yeah, and, like you know, like, I don't litter. Like I get mad yeah. at people who like I yell yeah. at people who litter. Like you know, like road rage people who throw <laughs> stuff out of their car. Like no, I'm not lying. Like I do this stuff, and like I spend a lot of time in nature and like really care about this stuff. But like it from a like policy perspective, like is um, is a is a nice forested strip of land uh wrapped around this you know massive metropolis uh is this like the the best allocation of our, our political resource right now yeah I, and i don't know if i could answer that question yes like you know it's just like totally into like for reforestation building tree canopy i plant a shit ton of trees i love trees right like like if you knew me in like my personal life, like I don't really talk about this stuff, but like I'm like weirdly into plants. Like, yeah. Um, but like, I still just don't know if it's like necessarily that valuable of a, yeah. And you talk about like prime agricultural land. It's like, well, they can still just run, um, like nobody, like you, we want a highway. They just freaking run highways through all the shit. Right. No problem. Right. right. With no questions asked. Yeah. Right. In, any infrastructure, just do it. Right. Um, it, it, you know, like the, the farmland that we're talking about. Um, I, it's just like, it, it's really interesting from my perspective that I, I think that it needs a lot more like light shed on it. The, mm-hmm. the, and I, and I, and I actually think that that's a good thing. That's a kind of a good thing. That's what's happening right now because it's going to open the political conversation to whether or not this is like really necessary. Yeah. Not any, like I think a portion of it is necessary, but like, it's like millions and millions of acres um, is all of it necessary. Right. 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 Um, you know, like moraine, you know, uh, marshland, like protected species, like all of this stuff. But like there, I see all these parcels. I drive by them all every day. It's like, that is a sandy, uh, dirt overgrown past uh, soybean field that like, it's just sitting there like, you know, and that could have like, you could house the entire Canadian pop or like entire homeless population of Canada right there. Yep. Right now. You don't even have to get a permit to do it. Just put it in 160 square foot little sheds and just <laughs> pop them all in that field. And they're, you know what I mean? Give them a, give them a buddy heater. Dude, I completely, I completely agree. You know, it's all such a, a perspective issue that, you know, it's like, what is, you know, building permits and, you know, quality of housing. Any structure is better than homelessness. Uh, yeah. I and, mean. you know, even, you know, houses that don't meet building code are palaces by 200 year standard. Right. Yeah. You I know, know. It, it is great. And it's like such a place of privilege to like, it was just funny to say like, you know, coming from, from this political, um, like conversation, but it is really a place of privilege that we can be talking about like how we, this land is so important. And, and I actually don't think anybody really felt that it was that important until there was an opportunity to score political points and villainize somebody yeah. villainize people that they, I don't want developers to make money yeah. making housing supply. Like when Trudeau uh, flipped the GST, it was like, Oh, this is going to make developers rich. It's like, okay, but it's also going to create a shit ton of houses. Is, is it that bad if somebody gets rich in the process? Really? They're yeah. already rich. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. They're already like, really yeah, rich. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it's just uh, like the whole political conversation, man, is really, really fascinating to me. Like I've been thinking a lot about doing like an end to end thing on just what is the green belt you know like mm. like canada land did for like the thunder bay stuff or yeah. like you know what i mean yeah like i think a whole um 
podcast series. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, like really should. from start to finish. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just separate, but like, yeah. Oh, people would love that. I think it would be really good. Be hot you have right to start now. when you start with like when it dropped, like McGinty, yeah. the protests, because people were protesting against the green belt. Like oh, wearing yeah. Wearing like uh, animal costumes and stuff, like farmers and like, it was crazy. Like people weren't into it. Then the wind stuff, 2015 land removals, legal yeah. land removals that got no, no publicity. Yeah. Right. And again, in two years, there's a legal window to take land out of the green belt. Nobody even knows that. Yeah, Ten no, year reviews are allowed. I didn't even know. I know, that. right? Yeah. yeah. Fascinating stuff. So where are you seeing uh where are you seeing opportunity for investing in real estate in Canada? Uh two rules that I have like right now are just because I think we're still in a super volatile market and like it's it's risky and so people have to be comfortable with risk. And the easiest way to buy to de-risk is like if we're in stagflation and prices come down, but we're in an inflationary environment is buy below replacement costs. So like, right. it sounds crazy. Cause it's like, where can I do that? It's like, well, I just a lot of a, places. Yeah. I bought a yeah. duplex in Cornwall, like, you know, last week for 200 grand and to rebuild it and depreciate it by a hundred years even would be 500 K, you yeah. know, like, so that is a big one. And then cash flow. Yeah. Um, and then I think we're starting to get into the point where you want to start to examine the uh, employment stability of the tenant. Because mm. I do think employment is really the next, what's the last, that's the last piece of a credit cycle, right? Housing, orders, profits, employment. Hope. Right. Right, because uh, vacancy is just going to kill you. Uh, n- no, but if your tenant can't pay, then in, at least in Ontario, they don't have to pay. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Know? Not even just vacancy. Yeah, well, that's, well, vacancy would be a good thing because we are like, it's like we're one sub- sub 1% vacancy mm. in most markets. So like, yeah, if you can get a place vacant, you can lease it right away. Right. Um, but if your tenant loses their job, they still need a house and yeah, they're going to try their best to pay and all of these things. Like I get it. Hardship exists. It sucks. It's very difficult, but like you don't have recourse to remove them for non-payment within a meaningful period of time. What is it? Six months? I've had a 16 month eviction. Um, really? But I think on average it's like, yeah, six to eight months right now. <sighs> yeah. Um, but like, this is where it's really broken and like, and, th- and I hope that the purpose built rental stuff and like the Blackstones and all that, like people want to villainize them, but like you want large multinational corporations being your landlords. Mm. Like they're efficient they're, and they're not volatile. Like right. they're not going to, they're not going to be like, Oh, I need to renovate or like my cousin needs to move in or, you know what I mean? Like they're not right. going to evict you illegally. They can't do that. First of all, they can do above guideline increases, which is what we're seeing a lot of this stuff. How, where there, there's protests and stuff. Um, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, um, that's better for society. It's better for the renters, mm. for, the, for the tenant um, pool. If their landlords are um, large multinational corporations in higher density arrangements, even if it's like <clears throat> ground-based, but they own the whole subdivision, yeah. better. Yeah, for sure. Uh, before I let you go, Last time you said you were going to run for mayor of Georgina. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, no. no. I didn't do it. <laughs> I, I I thought about it and a lot of people heard that and they were like, yeah, you should, totally should. But um, right now, I and it was interesting because I actually had a, a politician um, much further up than um, in the mayor space say like, yeah, like I think, you know, if you were going to be in politics, it would you have a lot more to offer than, than that role. And like, sure. it's not, I'm not saying this to like pump my tires, but like, and, cause I don't even know if that's correct. But right now I think that that would have just like really, really um, stopped my ability to s- do stuff like this. Right. 
and um, you know, you can apparently as a politician do whatever you want in your past. So I'm trying to fill my past with a bunch of meaningful stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I think I, I do have like political ambitions in the fullness of time, but it's, um, I want to like get to the point, I don't probably like in my forties, I would still be like characteristically very young sure. to be a politician. Um, but I think like I have a lot to learn, right. Too. Yeah. Um, and, and technology needs to advance cause I want to like just let people vote with their tax dollars or something. You know what I mean? Like right. Right. Fill right. Your tax On the blockchain. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's like, you know, just why don't you just like constant referendum where you allocate your, Oh, I agree. So simple. Yeah. Like, you know, tax return. It's like defense this much, yeah. you know, green belt this much. <laughs> Everyone have a nice paved road. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Like with that, exactly. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, appreciate you coming on, man. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. Always. See you guys next week. <laughs>